Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. As always, great to be with you this Thursday. And our top stories this hour include an American journalist arrested in Russia, a Wall reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Ivan Gershkovich, is being accused of espionage. Russia alleges he was collecting information about the country's military-industrial complex. The Wall Street Journal denies the allegations. We'll take you to Moscow for the very latest momentarily. Plus, Pope Francis hospitalized. The Vatican says the pontiff is suffering from a respiratory infection. The latest two on his health just ahead. And some of the biggest names in tech, including Elon Musk, raising the alarm on artificial intelligence. They're calling for a six-month pause, at least, on powerful AI system development. We'll speak to a man known as one of the godfathers of AI who also signed that letter. And from an AI pause to Wall Street applause, U.S. futures looking to add to Wednesday's near 2% gains for the tech-heavy Nasdaq, Amazon, Meta and Netflix, the outperformers. I think they're continuing to benefit from lower interest rate rise expectations. And on the other side of the Atlantic, as you can see there in the bottom row, stocks over in Europe making gains too. Across in Asia... Alibaba's six-way split still getting a salute, helping the Hang Seng rise over half a percent in Thursday's session. And China's new premier, Li Chang, saying he's confident the world's second largest economy will hit growth targets this year. We're talking around 5% for context. So plenty of news to get to, as always. And we begin today in Rome. The Vatican says Pope Francis's condition is improving after a good night's sleep in hospital. The pontiff is receiving care for a respiratory infection, as I mentioned. And Barbie Nadal joins us live now from Rome. Barbie, what more do we know about his health? Well, we know that the Vatican said that he did have a peaceful night. You know, yesterday he went into the hospital. They told us originally for some uh, scheduled checks, uh, and then they found this respiratory infection. Now, of course, this is important because he only has, he's missing half of one of his lungs, something that happened when he was a young man. So he is a little bit compromised when it comes to the respiratory tract. But, you know, we're heading into Easter. This is the most important week here in Rome and for the Catholic Church and for the Pope. He should be celebrating Palm Sunday Mass this coming Sunday. If he's in the hospital for a couple of days, that may look kind of like it might not happen. We don't know. We haven't been told anything about that. But the whole Holy Week, Easter week, leading up to next Sunday, the Pope makes many, many appearances, public appearances. There are many pilgrims who come to Rome to see him. And so, you know, we're waiting to see, hoping, of course, obviously, that he has some kind of quick recovery so that he can celebrate this all-important Catholic holiday. Julia? As you said, it's an arduous schedule over that period in particular. Just... I mean, we hope he's, he's back to full health and is able to do that. But what happens if he's not? 
Well, there's a whole system in place. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if the Pope is sick or something else happens, I mean, the, the Vatican is a fine oil machine that's been doing this for a long, long time. You know, John Paul II died uh, in April uh, 2005. It was right after Easter, but it was still sort of the same kind of, you know, the same time of the year, and, and, and everything goes off without a hitch. Um, you know, the plans are, are certainly in place, but, you know, people are really worried about him, about his health. You know, uh, two years ago, he had colon surgery. He's in a wheelchair now because of knee, uh, pain in his knee. But yet, you know, he's still traveling all over the world. He just went to Africa. Uh, he was in Canada earlier, um, or late last year, I should say. And, you know, these trips are very, very important to him. And when you see a man that strong with that much stamina sort of stopped like this in hospital, it really does give you pause. And I think a lot of people are concerned, like you would be for, for a grandparent or an elderly parent or something like that. He's 86 years old. Uh, and so everybody's got their, you know, hopes that he'll make a recovery, Julia. Yeah, fingers crossed for a swift recovery. Bobby, great to have you. Thank you for joining us there from Rome. Now, Brazil's ousted President Jair Bolsonaro back home after months spent in the United States. Moments ago, the far-right former leader addressed his supporters. Take a listen. They won't do whatever they want with the future of our nation. Today, I love being here with you. I'm sure you will drive Brazil to a safe harbor, and it's with immense pride that I return. Now, before he landed, Bolsonaro said he would not lead the opposition party on his return. He has never formally conceded the election and filed a petition contesting that result. That petition was rejected by the country's electoral court. Stefano Posibon joins us now. Stefano, I think context on that comment was important. He said the government is the opposition in itself, didn't he? So uh, not quite denying that he won't lead the opposition. What kind of reception do you think he will get, not just today, but beyond? Yes, Julia. I mean, uh, we are outside uh, the headquarters of the Liberal Party, where Bolsonaro entered about a couple of hours ago. He was uh, inside that building with uh, the uh, talk, uh, the address that he made to the members of the party that uh, you introduced. Uh, and right here, there is still a lot of expectations because just as you asked, what kind of uh, how he will use his political capital now that he's back in the country is uh, the biggest question. Uh, apart from the fact that most of the people behind my back haven't been able to see him yet uh, since he arrived in Brazil uh, uh, this morning. At the same time, they wonder how he will. Uh, how he will lead, how he will, what he will do, because uh, that's right, he said he does not intend to lead the opposition, but while speaking to the members of the party less than an hour ago, he said that he is confident that they will keep the current government in check, and that, that uh, because they have the biggest uh, number of uh, congressmen in Congress. Just to give a little bit of a bigger picture, Bolsonaro comes back to Brazil after three months staying in the United States. He never formally conceded defeat. He left the country before President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva took power. He stayed in Florida, met with members of uh, the right wing of the Republican Party, as well as uh, leaders, evangelical leaders and religious leaders in the US. And now he comes back, uh, both as a political leader, but also facing a number of investigations uh, that span from uh, some that almost look trivial, like uh, whether he took uh, uh, personal gifts, for example, from uh, Saudi Arabia that he received uh, as head of state and he should have relinquished when 
since he, he left office, but also very, very serious uh, investigations about his handling of COVID-19 and uh, his role in the January 8th riots here in Brasilia earlier this year. So there is a lot of expectation, there is a lot of uncertainty about uh, what it will mean and how his return will impact the dynamic of this country. For the short term, most of the people here are saying that they will stay uh, for the rest of the day, trying to see what they consider is their rightful leader. Julian. Yes, Stefano Pazibon, great to have you with us. Thank you. And now to Russia, where an American journalist has been arrested and stands accused of spying. The Kremlin's Federal Security Service claims Ivan Gurkovich of the Wall Street Journal was trying to collect secret information about Russia's military industrial complex. The Wall Street Journal denies the allegations and is urging Russia to release him. Matthew Chance joins us now from Moscow. Matthew, great to have you with us. What more do we know about the events that led to his arrest and even where he is now? Um, well, we, we don't know a lot about the events that led to his arrest. All we've got is the statement from the FSB, which is, of course, the successor organisation to the KGB. And they say they picked him up in um, Yekaterinburg, which is a city about 1,100 miles, 1,800 kilometres or so from Moscow, where he was caught... Uh, they say, trying to get secret information about Russia's military industrial complex. They, they weren't any more specific than that. But they said he was sent by the American side, as they called it, on a mission to get that, that information. Uh, where he is now, well, he's been brought to Moscow. Uh, there's been video appear of him on local media channels, um, uh, you know, attending this courthouse or arriving at this courthouse at Lefortovo, which is a, a prominent sort of prison complex and court facility in Moscow, and the press service of that uh, court facility has sort of issued some statements over the past few minutes. I've got them here in front of me. Uh, one of them saying is that uh, they've um, designated his case top secret. Uh, they said that Evan Gershkovich um, ha does not admit guilt, and so he's been you know, in this courtroom uh, being arraigned. And they've decided to, as a measure of restraint, they should detain him in a pre-trial detention centre. And they've set the time uh, of May the 29th. He's been detained until May the 29th. So that's one month and 29 days from now that Evan Gershkovich, this Wall Street Journal um, reporter who has been arrested on charges of espionage, will now be held in a pretrial detention centre here in Moscow, waiting the start of what the court says will be a top secret um, trial. Now, obviously, Julia, there's been huge pushback from the Wall Street Journal. They say that they vehemently denied the allegations against their reporter and they've called for his immediate release. As I understand it, we haven't had a statement yet from the US State Department or the White House, but we are expecting that soon. And what about if he's found guilty of this, Matthew? I guess the chances of acquittal, another question, but, but what are the consequences in Russia if found guilty? Well, I mean, <laughs> Russian courts have a, a, a worryingly... A good record, if you want to call mm. it that, of or the prosecutors have a worryingly good record uh, of of getting convictions. Uh, it's in the high 90s percent that, that, that cases that are brought to court get convictions. And in a case like this, I, I think you know we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But obviously, this is an immensely serious offence that he's accused of, and it carries a prison sentence of up to 20 years, um, which is obviously horrific uh, for Evan Gershkovich. Um, uh, the, there's already an American in prison uh, here, facing, well, on, you know, having been convicted of, uh, of espionage. Paul Whelan, of course, who was uh, detained in December 2018, sentenced to 16 years. Mm. But I think it's interesting because 
you know, this is the first American journalist, the first you know, journalist that I'm aware of, at least, uh, since the Soviet days uh, that has been accused and detained on, on espionage charges. And so it takes it, it, it shows how Russia has taken uh, potentially a very dark turn. Yes. Oats of the past. Matthew Chance. Thank you for joining us there from Moscow. OK, let's get the view now from the White House. So CNN's Jeremy Diamond joins us now. Jeremy, I'm sure there's a scramble there going on just to understand exactly what happened here and, and get more information. But as, as Matthew was discussing there, perhaps the immediate fear is yet another negotiating chip just months after the release of Brittany Griner, of course, the basketball player. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and this is obviously extremely concerning because it comes at a moment of extremely heightened tensions between the United States and, and Russia, uh, of course, uh, stemming in large part from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The U.S., of course, has led uh, the global coalition to support Ukraine and, and uh, severely sanction uh, Russia, an issue that Evan Gershkovich was reporting on just days ago. Uh, we do not yet have an official statement yet from the White House and the State Department. But what I can tell you is that White House officials have been working uh, to try and get more information about uh, Gershkovich's uh, arrest. In fact, State Department officials began tracking uh, news of his arrest yesterday before it actually even became uh, public. That's according to two U.S. officials. Uh, now, what's going to come next is going to be uh, pretty important. In particular, on the U.S. side, we know that the U.S. has new tools uh, based on a law that was passed in 2020, the Levinson Act, uh, to address the situation of hostage-taking and wrongfully detained Americans. Uh, so the U.S. would have to formally determine over the coming weeks whether or not they consider Evan Gershkovich uh, to be wrongfully detained. Uh, obviously, we don't have a ton of uh, facts yet about exactly what he's being accused of beyond this allegation of spying, but the Wall Street Journal itself uh, has vehemently denied those allegations. And we know, of course, that Russia has a track record of uh, putting up these trumped up uh, false charges uh, against uh, foreign citizens, including uh, American citizens. Now, there's also the question of what this means for Paul Whelan going forward, because we know that the U.S. had tried to secure his release alongside the release of Brittany Griner back in December uh, in exchange for the convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. Uh, in the end, Russia only agreed to a one-for-one -one swap between Boot and, uh, and Brittany Griner. Uh, so now you have not one, but two Americans uh, detained on espionage charges. Uh, Paul Whelan, of course, was convicted uh, to 16 years in prison. Uh, we will see if Evan Gershkovich faces a similar fate. But of course, very, very concerning and something that's going to head right to the top of President Biden's desk uh, today. Yeah, Jeremy Diamond, thank you for joining us there from the White House. And any further comments or developments, we will bring them to you the moment we get them. For now, China is warning it will resolutely fight back, quote, if Taiwan's president meets with the U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy during her stopover in the United States. There's been no official confirmation such a meeting will take place, but it is considered likely. President Tsai Ing-wen is not in the U.S. on an official visit, but rather on her way to a diplomatic mission to Guatemala and Belize. Mark Stewart is following the story for us. The president uh, coming to New York and lauding the relationship with the United States, saying actually the two had never been closer. Can't help but draw the parallel between the relationship between China and the United States, which you could argue perhaps has um, never been more distant. And the question now is, Julia, what will happen to this relationship? Based off of what we have been hearing from Beijing over the last few days, there are certainly questions about repercussions. 
One aspect that comes to mind is the trip that Secretary of State Antony Blinken was supposed to make, but was put on hold because of the suspected spy balloon uh, shootdown. Is that now in jeopardy of a future date because of travels by President Tsai? It's something we will have to see. But as you have mentioned, a lot of care is being described, is is being used to describe this visit as non-official, not as diplomatic, merely stopovers or a transit point. Yet that is not doing anything to quell the harsh language and remarks that we are hearing from Beijing, the strong statements from Beijing. Take a listen to an exchange that we heard uh, just hours ago from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The United States and Taiwan colluded with each other and arranged with Tsai Ing-wen to engage in political activities in the United States under the guise of transit in an attempt to enhance official exchanges and substantive relations between the United States and Taiwan. This seriously violated the One China principle and the provisions of the three Sino-US joint communiques and seriously damaged China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. While this visit to the U.S. is not being deemed as official, President Tsai's visit to uh, uh, Central America certainly is with visits to uh, Belize and to Guatemala. This is part of a mission that she is on to find allies around the world when alliances with China and other parts of the world are very strong. Julia. Yes, and those images that we're showing of um of the president in New York, as you can see, and and flags waving certainly resonating um, back in Beijing. Mark Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, straight ahead. Is AI getting too smart, too fast? We speak to a pioneer of artificial intelligence about whether it's time to slow things down. And later, a meteoric rise in supply chain security and out of this world approach to clean energy. We're talking asteroid mining and why later in the show. Welcome back to First Move. Chatter about ChatGPT has soared this year, and I know that because I don't feel the need to explain what that is. Well now, a group of artificial intelligence leaders and tech executives are calling for a six-month pause in certain parts of development, citing potential risks to society and humanity. The letter comes just two weeks after the firm OpenAI announced an even more powerful version of its viral chatbot tool. The group poses several questions, including should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? And should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? It's got signatures from Twitter CEO Elon Musk, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, and AI pioneer Joshua Bengio. Joshua, who is considered one of the godfathers of AI, says while ChatGPT is impressive, market pressures could push tech companies towards secrecy about their AI models. And Professor Joshua Bengio joins us now. He's also the founder and scientific director of the Mille Quebec AI Institute. That was a lot of letters. Um, Professor Bengio, great to have you on the show. I'm going to pose the very simple question once again. Is AI getting too smart too fast in your mind? Certainly, it has been progressing faster than anyone expected, including the people who've been designing the latest systems. 
and it has reached a kind of threshold which uh, is known as the Turing test, passing the Turing test, meaning simply that you can dialogue with those systems and you may not be sure if you're talking to a human or a machine. So uh, we've seen an acceleration in the power of these systems in the last few years, but even more in the last few months. And given the potential risks, um, we think it is important to start slowing down. Yeah, we've gone from train test to what feels like runaway train, but your point there was very important. We're almost at the point if not beyond it, where it's difficult to distinguish whether you're talking to a robot or you're talking to a human. Is that AI showing human and emotional intelligence? Because certainly some of the concerning examples I've seen are literally a conversation where a chatbot's telling you to break up with your wife or do certain things in what appears to be a form of emotional intelligence. Is that what we're seeing? Not really. These systems don't have emotions. These systems are trained to imitate the way humans speak given their context. And so because they've been trained on so much data, they will, and and humans do express emotions, and those systems are just like uh, replicating that kind of thing, but in in such uh, a way that it's not just copying the words that someone said. it's, It's producing new sentences every time. So it can really fool us even into thinking that uh, the, 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 the entity to which we're talking has emotions, which it, it doesn't. And that's the reason I ask. And that's dangerous because emotions uh, have a big influence on us, right? So this can be used to manipulate and influence people. Yeah, because whether it is displaying emotional intelligence or not, if we think it is, then that's what matters. What will a six-month exactly. pause at least achieve, really? Well, it's clearly not enough to uh, come up with all the solutions. Um, But we thought this was a simple enough thing for uh, a small enough group of companies right now, like a handful, um, to uh, maybe agree together to take a step back. And even if it doesn't happen, I think what matters is we have that discussion, that collective discussion, the discussion we are having today so that society can adapt it takes time you know for governments to draft legislation it takes time to draft international treaties because it has to be a global thing and we need to give us that time it's going to take certainly more than six months but the idea is to start the discussion about how do we rein in how do we protect the public um and how do we agree together which is obviously difficult um but we've done it in in the past. For example, with a nuclear, um, we we've done it. You know, in dangerous potential uses of bi- uh, technology in biology and so on. But we can do it again. Do you think the Microsofts and the Googles or the Alphabets of this world are prepared to have that conversation? Because it feels like even in the last three to six months, there's been a race to talk about what you're developing to come out with a better developed, a more sophisticated version, even just of these chatbots that can provide this kind of support? Do you think even they're prepared and willing to assume that someone else will also pause and not secretly behind the scenes, perhaps carry on and continue certain development because of the financial well, rewards? What you're, talking about, what you're talking about is exactly one of the important motivation for our letter that mm. 
there's currently a race that's accelerating in which companies are tempted to go quickly and, and, and let the ethical questions on the side. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, it's natural because, you know, companies have to survive. Companies have to make profit. They want to increase their uh, market share. So what's the solution? Uh, well, we need to agree together. So if, if, if you're one of you know, the leaders of these companies and you know that your main competitors all agree or governments force you to agree on um, you know, slowing down or some set of rules, then that's fine because we all, uh, you know, it's leveling the play playing field. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but but if you put yourself in the shoes of those people, I think they might welcome this. You know, I read a, a great book last year by Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt, and they were talking about um, the geopolitical challenges where you could get an agreement within the United States, for example, perhaps even Western nations, but countries perhaps like Iran, China, Russia, for example, if they were deciding to work on this technology, might not join for their own purposes. And then the level playing field that you're talking about suddenly shifts in favor of what could be perceived as or are perceived as hostile nations. Joshua, in order to have this pause, do you think all countries have to be involved or is it still worth having this pause even just in Western nations? even if other nations decide to continue to develop? So so right now, the West is, you know, has a lot of, uh, he's in advance by, by a large margin. So mm -hmm. a few months is not going to change much of that. In, in the long run, you're absolutely right. It has to be a global agreement. And we can do it. It's going to be hard. But, you know, we've done things like this for nuclear weapons um, and, and other technologies. So uh, we need to have all of these countries at the table. Uh, we're doing it for climate change. We're not succeeding very well. But, mm. you know, it is possible for countries to come together and, 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 uh, and agree on things because everybody uh, has something to lose if um, uh, the, these, these tools, you know, become too powerful and could be misused in, in ways that can be even dangerous for uh, authoritarian governments, because remember, they're trying to keep their power. So, um, yeah, th this these are difficult questions, and we're not saying we have the answers, but it is important to have scholars, experts, um, and, and 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 the media, and everyone who wants to, you know, have ideas about this, come together to explore solutions. Joshua, you raise a great point, though, about the ability to maintain control. And I think what's frightening um, a lot of people here is the fact that it almost already feels out of control. So um, the point there about controlled economies um, is a very valid one. Um, I want to take the counter here and, and just pull out one of the other questions, which is, should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete and replaces? Should we risk loss of control of our civilization? There will be critics here that say, you're all being alarmist. This is like Plato saying, look, let's not write things down uh, because it means that our, our brains will atrophy and our memories won't be used quite so much. Um, what do you say to those that are saying you're, you're overreacting at this moment? Is there a lack of understanding perhaps even today about how powerful this can be for good and bad? Can we separate the good well, and the bad? It's precisely because we don't have a clear answer to these questions. Mm that we need to be careful. 
it's precisely because I can't tell you exactly how you know uh, super intelligent AI systems could uh, get out of control. It's not something that I'm like really uh, thinking too much about. I'm more concerned about humans using this for for their own uh, power. Uh, but but it, it is a possibility, and we don't understand it enough. And, and there is some research trying to um, help you know us think about this. But we need more, uh, even if it's a remote possibility. Uh, we do we want to take those risks? Well, we need to at least start putting the guardrails mm. and doing the research that we need to prepare against those even remote possibilities. Are you frightened enough very quickly to say that government should be stepping in, even at this moment? And I have about one minute left on the show yes. to answer that. That's yes. the main message. Governments need to step in and they need to do it internationally. Mm. And now? Yes, because things are moving very quickly, faster yep. than we were expecting. And everyone can see it. You can try ChatGPT. Yeah, I have. Frightening. <laughs> Joshua, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. We'll continue this conversation. Thank you. Joshua Bengio there, founder and scientific director of the Mila Quebec AI Institute. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets in the green to start the session this Thursday. Take a look at that picture. The S&P on course for a fifth straight day of gains and adding to those gains Disney on the rise after a little bit of um, magic that perhaps even Mickey Mouse might be proud of. Legal agreements signed by the outgoing board taking power from the hands of the new board. The new board was Florida governor's creation to oversee the district that is housing or home to Walt Disney World. Stick with me. The Magic Kingdom seems to have the upper hand in a high-profile dispute with state authorities, at least for now. But the new board saying it's considering legal action. Leila Santiago joins us now. Leila, I think for an international audience, you have to explain just what's going on here and why um, the new board is um, so concerned. Right, a lot of very important context because this has been such a feud, a saga, long running here. But no, to your point, this was the outgoing, so we'll say Disney-friendly board members that made this agreement in the days leading up to Florida lawmakers moving forward with a state takeover of this special taxing district. I know this is sort of very nuanced and complex, but ultimately the big takeaway here is this feud, this between Governor Ron DeSantis and the Big Mouse, not over yet. Thank you. In a story with more twists and turns than any Disney movie, the former Disney-controlled Reedy Creek Improvement District board pulled a fast one just before Governor Ron DeSantis and his hand-picked board took over. This development agreement essentially strips the government of the government powers and give those powers to Disney. The board quietly approved the agreement on February 8th as Florida lawmakers met in a special session to give DeSantis control of the district. I cannot imagine Orange County, Osceola County, the city of Orlando or any other central government, central Florida government, allowing or agreeing to allow any private developer or property owner to have this sort of control over a government and, and the officials that run it. 
The agreement was signed before DeSantis had a chance to pick his board members. This development agreement, which in my opinion is void as a legal nullity, was passed the same day the Florida House passed the bill creating this board. And it was done to prevent us from doing our job. Under the New Deal, Disney would maintain control over much of its land in Central Florida for 30 years. And in some cases, the board cannot take significant action without getting approval from the company. Just last month, DeSantis celebrated gaining control of the board. The corporate kingdom finally comes to an end. There's a new sheriff in town and accountability will be the order of the day. Following a nearly year-long spat between Disney and the governor, it stemmed from Disney speaking out against a Florida bill which DeSantis signed into law restricting certain classroom instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity. And while it looks like the battle between Disney and DeSantis may not be over, Disney stands by its actions, saying in a statement to CNN, all agreements signed between Disney and the district were appropriate and were discussed and approved in open, notice public forums in compliance with Florida's government the sunshine law. I don't think anyone is trying to degrade the guest experience or the quality of the Walt Disney World Resort. I think what we're trying to do is provide oversight. But you know what that oversight will look like? Well, we're going to have to wait and find out given what could be sort of legal implications that we could see in the near future. But more context here, Julia. I mean, Disney, Walt Disney World Resort is the largest private employer in Florida. And this special district that they're sort of arguing over who actually has oversight, we're talking about 25,000 acres of land here that Disney is now saying we're going to have some of that self-governing status back while DeSantis's allies are saying, I don't think so. Julia? Yeah, you've got oversight without the ability um, to change much at least at this stage, and that was how it was before. Um, Leila Santiago, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that complicated story. Good job explaining. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, asteroid mining. Could rocks in space solve Earth's energy conundrum? What about investing in renewables while diversifying supplies? Space might have the answer. Next. Welcome back to First Move. To hit Paris climate goals, the International Energy Agency says investment in renewable energy must rise from $1 trillion a year to $4 trillion by 2030. But with that ramp up comes the risk of a concentration in supply chains with increasing reliance on nations like China, Chile, Argentina and Bolivia for essential minerals and metals. Just remember, these resources are needed to produce everyday items like catalytic converters, lithium-ion batteries used in electric cars, and computer chips. But instead of looking elsewhere underground, what if we looked up at asteroids and the materials they might contain? Of all the mining startups, Astroforge is forging ahead with its first launch next month. It's hitching a ride on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket to test whether its refining process can work in space. Here to explain, Matt Garlich is Astroforge's CEO and co-founder. Matt, I was so excited when I heard about your company, but now you really have to explain. What made you go, I know we need more of these mineral resources and metal resources. Let's look at asteroids. Yeah, I mean, we know we're running out of these resources on our planet. Mm. And we also know a lot about asteroids. They hit our Earth every day. We call them meteorites. 
Um, and we can go out and study them and look at what kind of metals are available on them and what their concentrations are. And uh, we went and did that. And what we found is that certain elements on our periodic table are in much higher concentrations than anything we have on Earth uh, of these specific metals. Specifically, we're going after the platinum group metals to start with um, because that's what we've identified as one of these resources that is wildly abundant in space. How much higher in terms of concentration? Just to give us a sense. Yeah, we have some asteroids that we've identified that have up to 10,000 times the percent of platinum wow. group metals on them than the ore deposits on Earth. So in some cases, extremely high. Okay, but this is where it gets complicated because you're talking about mining for these um, platinum-based metals in space, zero gravity we're talking about, and refining them. We've got pictures of this. Explain how this works. Yeah, so this is a refinery, you know, and we're sending this up in about 10 days on Transporter 7, SpaceX rocket that's going to low Earth orbit, and we're going to demonstrate that this device can take as input, essentially, a metallic asteroid, and it will produce platinum from that asteroid. And that's what we're going to demonstrate in about 10 days. So you're going to show both the mining and the refinery operations, because I believe this is mining. I'm showing an image on the screen now, but also the refinery process. So basically what you're going to try and illustrate and show investors, I'm sure, too, is that this can be done in space. Yeah, absolutely. We need to prove that we can essentially refine platinum from what we believe to be an asteroid in the zero G environment of space. Nobody's ever done it before. Um, we've obviously tested this, and the picture you're looking at is in our test facility here on Earth, which can get very close to what we expect to see in space, uh, but we need to prove that we can do it in space. Just compare the cost today of, if you can, of traditional mining, and I know it's difficult to quantify some of the softer issues like the socio-economic impact and the, the sort of climate-related cost of traditional mining, but if you add in the cost of the space launch and the kind of processes that we're talking about here, can you give me any sense? Yeah, I mean, traditional mining on average, if you were to go start an open pit platinum mine today, you're talking about half a billion dollars in capital expenditures needed to start that mining process um, to go through those ore and then to mine everything. It ends up being about $975 an ounce for platinum. We believe we can get that price down to about $50 an ounce for platinum. And again, you know, our startup costs there are still going to be substantial, but we're going to ore qualities um, that are so much higher than what we have on Earth. It allows us to drive that number down. I mean, that's a dramatic cost. Is this only possible? I mean, there are all sorts of complications. and There will be people looking at this going, what the heck even now? But because of the collapsing cost of launches, of actually getting into lower space orbit and beyond. 100%. This is driven by the advancement that we've seen in space, specifically with the new space economy. I mean, SpaceX really led this wave with the lowering of launch costs and the access to space. And now we're seeing the second wave of, uh, you know, lunar missions becoming available. And actually, for our second mission in October, we are launching on one of those rockets that is going to go to the moon. Uh, and we will actually leave from the moon. And what that does for us, it gives us a whole bunch of energy that allows us to escape Earth's gravity well without building a giant craft. So we can build fairly small space vehicles, uh, which means they're much cheaper, that can go out to these asteroids. And how do you get to the, to the meteorite as well? Because I, I feel like even just that part of the equation here is, um, is sort of eluding me. And, and what's the hit rate? I mean, not, surely not every uh, meteorite is going to have the kind of elements that you're looking for, or the ore at least that you're looking for. 
No, absolutely not. I mean, we started out with a list of over 1.1 million asteroids that we studied, and we whittled that list all the way down to about 31 target asteroids that we believe have these high concentrations of platinum group metals. And uh, we track them daily, right? So we track our trajectories, essentially the planning of leaving Earth to the asteroid every single day to understand how much fuel it would cost to get there. Um, And that's how we do it. How far away are we from actually seeing this used on a regular basis, Matt, if you, if you had to guess. And I know it comes down to financing, success rate, proving that you can do this in, in space. How far away do you think we are in terms of years? And don't go Elon yeah, space on is me, a risky give me wild. <laughs> <laughs> space is a risky business and you have a lot of failures out there and we're gonna experience some of those, um, um, I'm sure. You know, But our plan right now shows us launching our first mining mission at the end of 2025. Uh, we plan on bringing this back by the end of the decade. Wow. Okay, um, and what about money? Do you need to raise more money? How much uh, or how far can uh, the money that you have today get you? Money that we have today can get us through our first two milestones, right? Which is that refinery demonstration yeah. we're launching in a couple of days. And then also that deep space mission that's going to go out to the asteroid. Um, that's a huge mission for us, right? That'll be the first time a private space company has ever gone out and operated in deep space uh, doing a mission. And so I'm super excited for that one to show the world that we can do it. Wow, it's very sci-fi. So fingers crossed for that, because that really is, to your point then, a real show-me expedition, or at least two of them. Um, And then the conversations really begin with with investors. Matt, keep us posted, please. Good luck with everything that you're doing. Um, Still feels very sci-fi, but I'm excited. CEO and co-founder of Astroforge there. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Breaking news just coming into CNN. We're learning that nine service members have lost their lives after two Black Hawk helicopters belonging to the U.S. Army crashed. That's according to an Army official. The crash happened in Kentucky near the border with Tennessee. There were no survivors. I'll bring you more on this story when we get it. In the meantime, King Charles is in the midst of his inaugural state visit to Germany earlier this morning, addressing the parliament in Berlin, a first for a British monarch, speaking a mix of German and English, I believe. He hailed the relationship between the two nations. It gives me particular pride to be with you once again, now as king, and to renew the special bond of friendship between our two countries. This friendship meant so much to my beloved mother, the late Queen. And that tour continued. He then went on to meet displaced Ukrainians alongside the Queen Consort Camilla. CNN anchor and royal correspondent Max Foster has been following the King's trip and he joins us now from Berlin. Max, I believe you got a standing ovation um, at the end of that speech. And I can also see he brought the British weather with him because you're under an umbrella. He did. He definitely brought the rain, but as a Brit, I brought an umbrella, so I'm always ready for these moments. Prepared. There is some thunder. I'm hoping the crew aren't going to get electrocuted, but we're, we'll crack on. Uh, it was a big speech. It was the first um, speech by a British head of state ever before a session of the uh, Parliament. So it was interesting to see how Germany continues to get windier. <laughs> and <laughs> Oh, dear. Um, 
continues to um, really roll out the honours for the king. Uh, he talked about his personal ties with the nation. Lots of family have been involved in this trip. Uh, but fundamentally, as I said yesterday, Julia, this was the trip organised by uh, the British government and they want to deepen these ties between the UK and Germany. And it certainly feels like he's been doing that. He's about to go uh, to express one of his interests, which is go to an organic farm, see how they're doing that kind of work. He's got his own organic farms, of course, back in the UK. Uh, he was also watched a military um, uh, moment as well. Uh, much of his speech was interesting the way it tied in uh, the relationship between the two countries because he talks about how they used to be adversaries during the world wars but now they're working very closely together uh, in supporting Ukraine in that war against Russia. So trying to deepen those ties and it seems pretty effective because everyone we've spoken to has really appreciated the way he's come here and particularly there spoke German as well in the speech. I mean, we're just showing live pictures, actually, as you mentioned, of um, King Charles. And actually, he's crossing what looks to be relatively uneven ground to meet supporters. He's just been handed um, a love heart, a Union Jack love heart with some flowers behind it. So he's joking around with the, uh, with the spectators there that are there to meet him. There's a real friendly, um, cordial I think, environment that, that we keep seeing. We were talking about this yesterday as well, too. He's been guided carefully back onto, uh, onto the pavement, as we can see there. And as you said, an organic farm is something very close to his heart. Um, fascinating to watch and, and nice to see the um, congeniality, I think, of this meeting. Max, I'm going to let you go before we have an on-air Mary Poppins moment, or to your point, you get electrocuted. Please, <laughs> go get somewhere safe. Um, great to have you with us. Yeah, yeah. Get undercover, please. <laughs> it was funny a minute ago. I don't know what's going on with this weather. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would be funny now, too, if you took off, but it might not be funny for you. Um, great to have you with us, <laughs> Max Foster. Thank you. OK, and finally, from our Only Happens in Florida files. Take a look at this. Miami police are searching for a man who was, well, caught hanging around. What the... What's wrong with this dude? As you can see, he clung onto that drawbridge for some time until the bridge went back down again. Then he did a celebratory push-up and left the scene, so it looks like he actually meant to do it. Police say it's not the first time, in fact, that this sort of thing has happened, but apparently he walked away fine and healthy. An open and shut case there. Who wrote that? I didn't write that, but I like it. <laughs> That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'm going to go and check on Max to make sure he's OK. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 